As a medical professional, you're probably consumed by your work. Because of that, you likely miss out on big opportunities to protect and grow the wealth you work so hard for. Luckily, through passive real estate investing, you can place your capital in the hands of trusted syndicators who do all the legwork while you sit back and let your money work for you. Syndicators like Ascent Equity Group. Ascent Equity Group is led by three medical professionals turned full-time real estate investors who have secured a quarter of a billion dollars in assets in just three years. And their latest opportunity, Sunrise and Chandler, is open now. Sunrise and Chandler is an exciting 177-unit value-add multifamily opportunity in the affluent city of Chandler, Arizona. This Class B asset in a Class A location was secured at a significant discount and is already cash flowing out of the gate, with 89% of the units still in need of renovation. Sunrise and Chandler is close to meeting its capital raising goal and will be closing soon. So if you'd like to learn more, visit ascentequitygroup.com forward slash best deal to schedule a call. That's A-S-C-E-N-T equitygroup.com slash best deal. This opportunity is open to accredited investors only. What you want to do is then transfer that title out of your personal name and put it into an asset protection trust or an LLC linked to a land trust. Just something you just want to take it out of your personal name to where you're not going to be personally liable for it. Real quick, before the episode, I want to give you a gift of 25% off. And that gift actually is from TransUnion Smart Move. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, enter the code FAIRLESS at checkout for 25% off your next screening. Because as landlords, we tend to be most concerned with getting paid on time. You might also know that hundreds of thousands of landlords have to deal with the headaches of evicting tenants each year. Evicting a tenant can be painful, costing as much as $10,000 in court costs and legal fees, and take as long as four weeks to complete. What if there's a trusted way to help prevent the headaches of dealing with evicting a tenant? Make the smart move right from the start. Smart Move's online tenant screening solution can help you quickly understand if you're getting a reliable tenant, which will help you avoid potential problems such as non-payment and evictions. For a limited time, listeners of this podcast are invited to try Smart Move tenant screening for 25% off. Here's how Smart Move can help you find your next great tenant. Make a more informed decision with Smart Move's proprietary credit score built specifically for tenant screening, which predicts evictions 15% better than a typical credit score. Reduce non-payment risk with Smart Move's Income Insights Report, which enables you to analyze the applicant's income within minutes and determine if additional income verification is needed. Get critical information quickly with a full credit report, criminal background, and eviction history report. With over 5 million screenings completed, SmartMove can help you make a better leasing decision for your rental property. If you own a rental property, SmartMove can help you identify the right renter from the start so you can avoid the problems of non-payment or evictions. Don't put yourself at risk. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, enter the code FAIRLESS at checkout for 25% off your next screening. With TransUnion Smart Move, you'll get great reports, great convenience, great tenants. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. What's today? Brian T. Bradley. How you doing, Brian? I'm doing great, Joe. And thanks for having me on and the best ever listeners and putting this podcast together. And this is really going to be a good hot topic for everybody from your newbie to the person with a thousand doors. And I just hope that I can add some value here. Asset protection is very important. And that is our focus today. Best ever listeners. First off, hope you're having a best ever weekend because today is Sunday. We've got a special segment, Skill Set Sunday. And that skill is talking about asset protection. So a little bit about Brian 
He is an asset protection attorney for investors, self-made entrepreneurs, business owners, high-risk professionals, and affluent families. He sets up systems and strategic teams for clients for asset protection and wealth management. Based in Portland, Oregon, works with clients all over the country. And with that being said, Brian, first you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and then let's roll right into some things we should know about asset protection. Yeah, let's do it. So as you said, I'm an asset protection attorney and I got into asset protection from the litigation side of things. A lot of these guys come into from estate planning. I got into asset protection from the attack side and just having a lot of clients come into my door who a lot had insurance and a lot had revocable living trust and it gave them a false sense of security. The next thing you know, they were getting sued and their lives were just turned completely upside down. They were shell-shocked that they weren't protected and everybody was starting to distance themselves from them. So what I wanted to do was start providing something better that added value for clients and try to get them on the front end of things and set up systems before they needed them and before they were being attacked. So just like an investor, my goal here with what I do is just to add value to the client. And if I can't add value to them, then they really don't need me. And there's nothing that I'm doing really that's special. It's just the way me and my network look at things and the way we work at things. So what we really want for clients is to not just educate them on what they don't know with what they're doing. That's the easy part. But what we really strive for is to educate and teach clients on what they don't know that they don't know, because that's where real problems come into the issue. And so what we do for our clients is, like you said in the intro, is set up strategic teams and systems for more advanced estate planning. And then using our acronym ECCM, which stands for Effective Control Costs and Maintenance, all while trying to keep in mind the overall goal of lifestyle preservation, because that's really what asset protection is all about, preserving their current lifestyle, creating peace of mind, and then changing the way a potential predator is going to actually view you while trying to pick up and build in some secondary goals of tax benefits and decreasing your taxable estate and taking risk off the table. You said you help set up systems before they are being attacked. What are some systems that you'll set up for your clients more often than not? More often than not, we're trying to put people into asset protection trust. We also use LLCs or Delaware Statutory Trust. There's different versions of trust. So the trust that we're trying to do here is separate the client's personal liability using our acronym ECCM. So we can break this down a little bit if you want, so that the listeners here have a better idea of what they're trying to get when they go and talk to their lawyer. So when we're setting up effective systems, what we mean is that any attorney can make an argument to pierce a corporate veil. I think you've had an episode in the past with another lawyer about piercing veils. And so depending on the state like California, which is a non-asset protection friendly state, the worst thing that you can do is own anything in your personal name. And so effective systems are actually going to use what we call exemption planning first. And this is before you go and set up like an LLC or some sort of corporate structure or a trust. And this is just because an exemption is a legal right. So before we do anything elaborate, we want to see what assets we can stuff into an exemption. And then after that, we move into more advanced estate planning, which would be an asset protection trust. And then we would be going into picking the best jurisdiction to establish that trust in. We like the Cook Islands or at least having that as an option in the back pocket, but we would always prefer to link that option if we needed to with something domestic based here in the U.S. And then continuing with the ECCM acronym, your best listeners are going to want a system that actually gives them control. And control doesn't mean in your personal name. It just goes to what the rich are doing. You know, The rich don't own things. They just use them and they get the benefit from them. So they don't want to own the assets in their personal name. They want to really just separate the personal liability out. 
And then when they're getting into these systems that they're going to go talk to their lawyers about to set up, the costs have to be reasonable. If you can't afford it, you're not going to go set one up and then you're going to still be personally liable. And then at the back end of it, the annual maintenance that you have to pay with your IRS and your filings, you can't lose money due to annual maintenance fees. Otherwise, you're also not going to set one up. So you just want to keep in mind when you're talking to your lawyers and shopping around for systems, ECCM. You said the rich have control, but they don't own them, but they get to use their assets. How do they do that? What they're doing is a basic system. You're transferring the assets out of your personal name. So a lot of your listeners are going to go into a bank. They want to go buy an asset. They're going to go get a loan. They're going to put the title in their own personal name. But then that holds you personally liable for everything. So no matter what kind of system you set up, whether it's an LLC or some sort of asset protection trust, what you want to do is then transfer that title out of your personal name and put it into an asset protection trust or an LLC linked to a land trust, just something you just want to take it out of your personal name to where you're not going to be personally liable for it. If someone has worked with an asset protection attorney already and they've got some stuff drafted up and they couldn't exactly explain what they've got drafted up, they just kind of follow the advice of the attorney. What are some questions that they should ask their attorney to make sure that what they currently have is set up properly? I think the best thing first is like anything, you want to shop around and don't just talk to one person. You're going to want to vet that attorney like you would vet your doctor or your CPA. And the first thing you would want to do is make sure they do what's called an asset diagnostic. Some firms, because they're just used to drafting trusts and they're not asset protection firms, no one wants to turn down business. So like, oh yeah, we can create an LLC for you or real Mm -hmm. estate lawyers, but they're not specifically specialists in asset protection. An asset protection lawyer who's worth his dime is going to first have you fill out your entire financial portfolio and life into what's called an Mm -hmm. asset diagnostic. And then what we're going to do is look through what state you live in, what exemptions you have available per your state. Because then once you put an asset into an exemption, that can completely change the entire evaluation of what we actually have to protect. Because if it's an exemption, we don't need to put it into a protective system. So we need to know what we can exempt first and then go from there. But that's all going to be derivative off of the asset diagnostic. So that's really the first thing that you want to make sure is that before you even speak to them, you're going to have an efficient conversation with that lawyer because they've done an asset diagnostic. And then the next thing is, what other tools do they have in the toolbox? Are they only pumping one product? Are they only using an LLC? Are they only using a Delaware statutory trust? Or are they taking the time to actually evaluate you and see how you're different than your neighbor or everybody else? And then just like a doctor matching what prescription works for you, your net worth, your profession, your risk liability, your investment strategies, what tax advantages don't you have? Because then we'll work with the CPAs and our financial advisors to see what credits you didn't pick up, what tax benefits you didn't get, and then creating the system around it. So you just want to vet that attorney to see what options they have to work with. Okay. So that's in the vetting process. But my question is, You've already got that done, and you want to make sure that whatever has been done is done properly. So what questions should you ask the attorney that you have already selected to make sure that that was set up properly and that you do have the right stuff in place? I think that should be done in the vetting process because you're not a lawyer. And so just like your doctor, you're not a doctor. So how do you know that the doctor that diagnosed you diagnosed you correctly? 
you eventually have to just work with your team and you can potentially, if you wanted to go take it to another lawyer to have it checked, that's just going to be expensive. But at the end of the day, I think that you need to, when you set up your team and your advisors, you're paying them for a reason. So I would trust them after your vetting process and you ask them all the questions and you went through a bunch of different people and who you're comfortable working with. Because your listeners, I wouldn't be comfortable giving them the advice to say, after you get your LLC set up, now second guess your lawyer and ask this, this, and this, because that lawyer shouldn't know what they're doing. Got it. Okay. So if any best ever listeners do have something already set up, then they should have already know what they're doing because they picked a lawyer if they went through the proper vetting process. And if there is an action item, it's not necessarily to ask questions to them. It's just you could take it to another lawyer to just have it double checked. Yeah. And I want to say that don't ask questions to your lawyer. For example, like if you go to LegalZoom, they're not law firms, but there's a lot of missed clauses. I wouldn't be able to tell you, go ask this as a checklist because I don't know their situation, but I would say if you aren't comfortable with what your lawyer is doing, go get a second opinion. Got it. Okay. When you work with clients, what's a unique challenge that you've come across that you've helped solve? A unique challenge is 50% of the phone calls that come in are people who are already being sued and then saying, hey, what can we do for us? And unfortunately, on the asset protection side, the courts really favor asset protection planning before you're in trouble. And so obviously, people don't care about that. They don't think about it until you already are in trouble. You're like, you don't jump into the deep water. So they're coming in the door, 50% of the clients already being sued. And at that point, it gets tricky of what we can and can't do. And it gets more expensive. So one of the clients, for example, is a doctor that we had he got sued for, if I like think back to this real quick, uh, nerve damage case. And he had $1 million in liability coverage. He had about $3 million, I think, in assets and net worth plus his practice. It was like, hey, I'm being sued. What can I do for you? And it's like, well, you're already being sued and you didn't set anything up in the beginning. So it's going to be a little tricky. But what we can do with some of the tools in the toolbox is look at what your insurance coverage is and then what we reasonably would expect your malpractice insurance to cover you for. And then from there what would the reasonable claim be? And then we can either shield those assets and put them out of the protection system and then protect everything else. Or what we can do is put everything that you own into a protective system and then just exempt that lawsuit. Another tricky one is we get a lot of divorcees coming in and not wanting to give their spouses access to the properties that they own. So we have to walk through and say, all right, this is communal property, most of this. We can create and help you protect the assets, but we either have to exempt the current dissolution assets and then work with your spouse on what is community versus separate property. And so those are the tricky ones when they come in, just how to balance what's reasonably going to be covered with insurance, what's not, or dissolutions because of communal property relationships. Mm -hmm. And any tips for someone who is getting sued and they're like, oh man, I don't have any asset protection. Or, or let me rephrase. Let's do a different hypothetical. Who has a high likelihood of being sued because maybe they're a fix and flipper and they work with a lot of general contractors and they don't have asset protection. Any main things they should make sure they keep in mind whenever they're working with an asset protection attorney? Yeah, I would say the thing to keep in mind is I get a lot of guys like I have never been sued yet, but you need to realize if you choose to work in real estate or be an investor and a flipper or whatever you're doing in real estate, real estate law is the hottest 
area of law for you to be sued in. It's the most litigated area of law. So it's really just not a matter of if, but when, and then what condition you're going to be in when you do get sued to deal with it. So I always say proactive planning. So if you're already being sued, what you need to do is understand your assets and what is that asset that's under attack right now. And then ask the lawyer, what are the options of like we just went through? I have insurance in X amount. What's the reasonable amount of coverage that we can expect the insurance company to cover on this lawsuit? And then if we can't protect that one particular piece of property, maybe you own three or four more, and then maybe we can shield the rest of those and protect those while that one piece of property that's subject to the lawsuit gets filtered through the system and then the lawsuit goes away. Or like I said, ask them, can we put everything in and then just exempt that one lawsuit from the protection system? And then you're protected going forward. Okay. You mentioned Cook Islands. Why set up jurisdiction there? It's just the strongest jurisdiction that you can have because they just don't recognize U.S. court orders. (laughs) (laughs) That's the great thing about it. So let me get to this right here for you. So you know, like what we always say is maximize exemptions first, and then picking jurisdiction is the next best thing after that. And the greatness of foreign trust is that, like I said, the statutory non-recognition of jurisdiction court orders from the U.S. So what this means is they're just going to go tell anything in the U.S. or a judgment to go pound sand. They're not going to be able to collect. They'd have to go and restart the case all over from scratch, facing the highest legal standard in the world, which is the murder standard beyond a reasonable doubt. And this is just for a civil claim. And then the plaintiffs are going to have to front all the court costs. They're going to have to fly in a judge from New Zealand to the Cook Islands. (laughs) Like It it gets crazy in what you have to do to be able to sue somebody in the Cook Islands. The claim's not amendable. And what this means is that once you file the complaint after the discovery process, you can't go back and amend that complaint like we can do here in the U.S. So what you file, you're stuck with. And then a big deterrent on this is if you lose, you end up paying. So that plaintiff who is suing you is most likely going to lose because they have to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt. So they're most likely going to be paying all of your legal fees also. And most likely, they're never going to get the chance to sue you in the Cook Islands because there's a one-year statute of limitations. So while they're kicking their tires here in the U.S. trying to sue you in the U.S., they've already run their statute of limitations time frame in the Cook Islands, and they don't have an actual time frame now to go and sue you there. If we want to compare this now to our acronym ECCM, because there's always give and takes and pros and cons to everything. If you're purely foreign, meaning offshore in the Cook Islands, number one, effectiveness, that's five out of five stars. Like we just went over how it's truly effective. But on the other three factors, control, cost, and compliance is going to be a little bit short. For a foreign asset protection trust to actually work, you have to be out of control, meaning you're going to have to be subjected to a third-party foreign trustee in the Cook Islands. The costs are going to be a lot higher to maintain. So you're going to go from about $1,500 to maintain to over $5,000. And we've seen over $10,000 to be purely foreign and just annual maintenance fees. And if you're purely foreign, you have a lot more IRS reporting compliance and disclosure fees. So you have to file these IRS 3520s and 3528s. But we only go purely foreign for about 5% of our clients who are really high risk. Everybody else, that's just overkill. So we have the option that we use, which is called a bridge trust. And we kind of bridge something domestic with the Cook Islands. And we stay domestic until we actually have to go foreign with the pre-drafted triggering clause that then moves us foreign if we ever have to execute that clause. Oh, sounds like the best of both worlds. Why Why wouldn't you have the bridge trust 
clause, if I said that right, in the super risky people, because it sounds like it's the same thing. Because sometimes you just, depending on they're coming in and what's going on with their situation, they may just have to immediately be more aggressive in their planning and go foreign. And this because they're to preserve wealth, depending on they may have a potential lawsuit that's coming up and they may be losing $50 million. So on that standpoint, I would say, we need to be a little bit more aggressive and we need to go immediately more foreign and then apply some more aggressive asset protection strategies to preserve the equity into it. But like I said, like that's just for higher and more risk clients. What you really want to do is just be more reasonable in your costs and how you're going to break things down, but have, like you just said, the best of both worlds. Be domestic. Don't have to worry about all those IRS filings that you don't have to do. Pay cheaper maintenance fees, but still have the power of the Cook Islands with built-in triggering clauses to go there if you need to. Anything else that we haven't talked about as it relates to asset protection that you think we should? How are we on time? Because there's one thing I think that would be a really big value for your clients, which would be fraud versus fraudulent transfer, but I don't know how we are on time. Please continue. Fraud and fraudulent transfer is really the crux of where all the decisions that we have to make come down to. So fraud is, or let's start with fraudulent transfer or conveyance. It's a transfer of ownership of an asset. So what you own for little or no consideration. So what this means is that the other party is not really getting anything of value for it. And then this comes with an intent to hinder, delay, or defeat the claim of a creditor. So the key here is the intent. So in other words, the courts are going to look at what was the state of mind when a transfer was made. So whenever you're transferring properties, they want to know what was your intent. And then did it have an actual effect during the transfer period, delay, hinder, or defraud a creditor? So where people get wrong with this is if you don't have that state of mind, then there's no fraudulent conveyance. And if you didn't have a creditor existing at that time when you made that conveyance, then there was no fraudulent conveyance. So that's the point of being proactive and planning beforehand and before the need. And now let's compare this to fraud because these are drastically two different concepts. Fraud is an intentional misrepresentation of a material fact to induce someone to refrain from acting to their detriment. So you're just intentionally misrepresenting them with the intent to hurt them. And then they do get hurt. So these two concepts are different in how they're actually applied in the law. So understanding fraud is usually, that's a crime, but fraudulent transfers, on the other hand, aren't. They're what we call a supplemental or secondary proceeding where you get sued. They're going to start finding out what assets you transferred during the discovery process and for what consideration. And if it's discovered that you made a transfer for little or no consideration within about five years, what they're going to do is have the judge ask to undo that transfer. So they're going to ask, the remedy of this is to ask the judge to give it back so that the creditors can collect the judgment. So I think a good example would be the doctor example that we went over with in the beginning, sure. gauging the likelihood of what the insurance would cover or not. And then this is also goes to the importance of what we're talking about with picking a jurisdiction and how it relates to fraud. So the reason, for example, an offshore trust is so powerful or having in the back pocket is that in order to undo a transfer, the court actually has to have the power to tell that person that you know you did the transfer to, that you gave the asset to, to actually give it back. So any court that's in the U.S. doesn't have the power to go and tell an offshore Cook Island trustee to give it back. They're just going to go tell you to go pound sand and ignore that order. And the Cook Islands, like we said, just statutorily don't recognize U.S. court orders or judgments. But if we compare this to anything purely domestic in the U.S., 
we don't have that option because of the full faith and credit clause of the constitution. You can't run from judgments in the U S. So that really goes into why we want to pick strong jurisdictions and why we want to first max out exemptions. Thank you for sharing that. I'm glad that you brought that up and I know that's going to be valuable. And this conversation was very valuable and I'm very grateful that you spent some time with us on this show. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing and get in touch with you or your team? Yes. My email is one of the best ways, Brian, B-R-I-A-N at btblegal.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn, just Brian T. Bradley and my firm's Bradley Legal Corp. And I'm always checking my email and on LinkedIn. And we do free initial consultations and the exemption diagnostic reports. And we'll go over all your assets and the different exemptions and the specific tax and credit strategic planning that you may have missed. So you can try to recapture those missed opportunities and I used to charge for this, but then I got tired and concerned about clients not wanting to know what's going on and what we can do for them because they didn't want to pay a consultation fee. So I'd rather just say, here, take this hour, an hour and a half for free, educate yourself, go go over everything. And then now you have more education to set yourself up. And if someone already has a plan in place, but they are not sure if it's accurate, is that yeah, consultation still? Exactly. And particularly, there's a lot of exemptions that I know you probably have a lot of California listeners. Yes. They don't even know that, for example, what's called a private retirement plan, PRP planning, which anything that can be stuffed into this plan that we can reasonably calculate for is completely exempt from a lawsuit. So we will do these evaluations and a lot of people outgrow the systems that they're in and we'll just upgrade them and see what we can stuff them into and what works for them. Excellent. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for talking about your background for why you got into the business as well as a lot of specifics for what to think about from an asset protection standpoint. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. We'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, Joe. You too. Bye. If you own a rental property, TransUnion Smart Move can help you identify the right renter from the start so you can avoid the problems of non-payment or evictions. Don't put yourself at risk. Go to tenantscreening.com, create a free account, enter the code FAIRLESS at checkout for 25% off your next screening. With TransUnion Smart Move, you'll get great reports, great convenience, great tenants. What if you could earn 10000 per month net cash flow for life? Now you can at the Residential Assisted Living Academy. Gene Guarino teaches you how to take a single family house and turn it into a cash flow machine. Visit ralacademy.com to learn more.